Nima We've been thinking about the wisdom literature, and the one thing we learn in the wisdom literature is that it is wise to be sad about sad things. It is wise to be sad about sad things. And to resist being sad about sad things is its own naivete and folly. And we remember our own Savior who was heard. Uh, for his supplications in Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, he was heard with loud cries and supplications. And to be sad about sad things uh, is because there's a time to mourn and to take that seriously, a time to mourn. Sometimes... Uh, the most biblical response we can have, the most godly response we can have to something is our tears. A recognition that we're not yet, we were far from Eden and not yet home. And when you hear Charles Spurgeon, whom many of us respect, uh, and you 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 run down through the list of all the things he accomplished in the name of the Lord, all the, the orphanages and churches and uh, the pastor's college, the no, numerous people who came to saving faith in Christ to be because of him, or through his life because of Christ. We, we can think to ourselves, ah, oh, such a man, you know. And some of us are striving to be such a person in our generation. Someone will say, where is the Spurgeon of our day? And then we'll look inside of ourselves and try to muster up being such a person. But it's good to remind ourselves of the caution of trying to become a hero. Would we want the criticisms that he faced? He was criticized from people just like us, many of our tribes. If Spurgeon was alive today, we would be criticizing him. And he also was criticized from the left. He was criticized by the right and the left, by everyone. His criticisms were so great that eventually he, he couldn't read any more, any more mail or anything that came his way. He had a secretary read his email. Such were the vicious nature of the things that people said about him. Would you like that? You know, would you like to live that life? And of course, he suffered physically, terribly, and his wife, as you may know, his dear wife, uh, suffered physically most of her life and was bedridden for much of it. And, and then the truth is, he was a man who suffered depression. Here are just a few things he says publicly from the pulpit as a 19th century Baptist. This is how he began an evening service when he was about to preach. Could you imagine speaking like what you're going to hear? He said this, 
I'm quite out of order for addressing you tonight. I feel extremely unwell, excessively heavy, and exceedingly depressed. How's that for starting the evening sermon? I am the subject, this is on a different occasion, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of of wretchedness as I go to. This is how he's speaking to his congregation. Personally, I know that there is nothing on earth that the human frame can suffer to be compared with despondency and prostration of mind. Quite involuntarily, unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart will come upon you. You may be without without any real reason for grief, and yet may become among the most unhappy of men because for the time your body has conquered your soul. We very speedily care for bodily diseases. They are too painful to let us slumber in silence. And they soon urge us to seek a physician or a surgeon for our healing. Oh, if we were as much alive to the more serious wounds of our inner man. As you look through the titles of many of Spurgeon's sermons, the titles, The Frail Leaf, the wounded spirit, the fainting soul, the bruised reed, the man of sorrows. When someone yelled fire when he was preaching to thousands and everyone scattered, seven people were killed and 28 people injured. Susanna, Spurgeon's wife, and the others wondered if he would regain his sanity. Simply to speak of the Bible made him weep. And the next time he stood two weeks later to preach in the same spot, this is how he started the message. I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe, but on coming back to the same spot again, and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions and well-nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning. I have been utterly unable to study. O Spirit of God, magnify thy strength and thy servant's weakness. Enable him to honor his Lord even when his soul is cast down within him. Another quote. Especially judge not the sons and daughters of sorrow. Allow no ungenerous suspicions of the afflicted, the poor, and the despondent. Do not hastily say they ought to be more brave and exhibit a greater faith. 
Ask not, why are they so nervous and so absurdly fearful? No, I beseech you, remember that you understand not your fellow man. When Charles Spurgeon speaks of depression, he has a rich theology of it as well as his own experience of it. He'll say that um, depression uh, comes from three sources, sometimes individually, sometimes altogether. The first first source is circumstantial. Something happens in your life, and the sanity of sadness, the wisdom of being sad about the sad thing, the wisdom of having sadness in proportion to the thing that happened turns dark. And the proportionate sadness that we would have with all the length of time required, we get stuck in it. And it stays with us. It's a thing that's happened to us or someone we love. It is Job's wife seeing all that she has seen. Can you imagine your kids dying, your livelihood gone, and the one you love most in the world suffering so terribly right in front of you every day and nothing you can do? The circumstances that he will name uh, sometimes include these in one of his sermons, desertion, the neglect or betrayal by a spouse, a family member, a friend, a parent. Bereavement, the ailment of death of one we love. Penury, which is job loss, financial strain, poverty of basic needs, financial stress. Disappointment and defeat We thought we would win, but we didn't. Dreams unreached, goals blocked. We thought we would have become such and so by now. We thought we would have accomplished this by now. Guilt, like regret, pains we've caused others, sins against God, circumstances of providence that cause depression. A quarter of a century, some quarter of a century later, when uh, Charles Spurgeon was preaching to a large crowd, the crowds were pressing in, and he had what we would call today a flashback. He began to be, in the words of the time, completely unmanned. Everything in his body began to shake. Uh, the person, the, the newspaper person watching him and how he himself describes it of the time was he felt his whole body was if it was disintegrating. Sweat, trembly. And he didn't know if he would be able to preach at all. Why? Because the crowds pressing in like that triggered, as we would say, triggered the memory of the night when the seven died, the day when the seven died and the 28. And he kept preaching because he didn't hear. The place was so large, he didn't know what was taking place. And as that, those people were being trampled to death, he kept preaching. And he was mercilessly criticized in the press. How could he have kept preaching when people were dying? But he didn't know. 
And here he is, still a quarter of a century later, undone by the memory, the circumstance. Uh, in this regard, may I just say briefly, um, I, I would like to respectfully differ uh, with some of my very dear colleagues with whom we'll be in heaven together because of Christ. And I'd like to ask you to no longer say from Philippians 4 that anxiety is a sin. I'd like to ask you to consider not doing that anymore. Do not be anxious about anything but by prayer and supplication. And so from that passage, to berate the anxious, to call them to repentance. May I I make my case why? First of all, when an angel comes and says, do not be afraid, is it a rebuke? When Gabriel appears to Mary and says, don't be afraid, is, she call, is he calling for Mary's repentance? Surely you know the answer is no. It's consolation. Her fear makes all the sense in the world. And he's assuring her, no need to be afraid. When a little child sees the sea for the very first time, for us, where I live, that child, they might be four years old before they see the sea. Can you imagine? Where I live in the state of Missouri, we're a long way from an ocean. The first time a little child, three years old, sees the, the ocean, Sometimes that little child clings to your leg in fear. Are they sinning? Coward. This is what Revelation speaks of. Hell waiting for the cowardly. No, of course not. Actually, that little child is probably the most sane one of us on the beach because the little child sees exactly what they're looking at and we've long forgotten that that whole thing could swallow this little one up and they're afraid. It's probably a very reasonable response. What is the theme of Philippians? If you were taking a survey, memorizing the books of the Bible, and you were asked, in one word, how would you describe Philippians? What's it about? Joy. Joy. Not only in content, but the whole tone, the whole tone of the passage. This is the the people, these are the people that he says he loves from his bowels. Such a joyful, kind, warm tone throughout. Another thing to consider, on all of the apostles' lists of sins, anxiety is not one of them. Now, I understand not every sin is listed, but it seems significant to me. Besides the fact, Paul himself says he's anxious. He has an anxiety for all of the churches, he says. And then just in this very letter, in Philippians chapter 2, he tells us of how his own anxiety was... uh, 
minimized by God's provision. Can we sin in our anxiety? Of course. But is being worried about a worrisome thing a sin? If you, are, if you hear a noise in the middle of the night and you're the one the rest of the family turns to to get up and go check it out, are you sinning if your heart is pounding? Are you sinning if you're worried or afraid? Of course not. As you walk courageously toward the noise to protect your family and everything inside of you is afraid, are you sinner? No. You're responding the way God made us to respond when we see something that's worrisome or causes fear. And yet you keep walking toward it. You are no coward. Your anxiety is no sin. When Paul says, do not be anxious, isn't he teaching them pastorally what to do when they're anxious? If it's necessarily a rebuke, then doesn't this mean that any time your heart pounds, you are a sinning? Where are we left? Where can we go? Is there ever a time that we can now cry out to the Lord with the worries on our heart if the worry itself is already a sin? Doesn't that leave us in the position, therefore, that we must always never be worried? And now aren't we stoic rather than Christian? Well, I speak as a defender of the anxious and I say, be careful, Job's friends. Be careful. We'll be in heaven together, won't we? Because we're justified by Christ, not our position on Philippians 4. There is also biology. Spurgeon simply said, that sometimes, quote, sometimes we are marked by melancholy from the moment of our birth. Some of us, he says, are constitutionally sad, unquote. He'll therefore go on to say that depression is a misfortune, not a fault. He'll say that depression is no sin. He'll say that sometimes a melancholy temperament, a nervous temperament, the kind of temperament that can face a circumstance and struggle to recover is built into the chemistry of our body in the fallen world. Because his theology is that we are body and soul and that the effects of the fall have impacted both. as well as the effects of redemption. Thirdly, chemistry, circumstance, he'll also say conscience or spiritual depression. The person who believes 
that all the application of redemption is for someone else but not for them. That God exists and the Lord is good but not for them. It's as if every promise is for someone else but not for us. And the enemy of our soul, Spurgeon says, often takes advantage of seeing the one weakened in body, devastated by circumstance. And then like, um, like the lioness who isolates the wounded from the herd, the enemy of our soul comes after us. You remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the very first thing Satan said to him, you remember, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. What's the first temptation? Turn these rocks into bread. The enemy of our soul is no fair player. He takes exactly what is weakest. And unlike our Savior, to whom we can plead our weaknesses, Satan seizes upon it and seeks to destroy us. And so sometimes, you see, uh, we are harmful helpers. One of the remarkable things about Spurgeon is that when he speaks... When he speaks about Job's friends, he speaks strongly. He stands as an advocate and defender of the vulnerable. Because unwittingly, we become instruments of Satan. Speaking to the downcast as if they themselves need to pull themselves up. And so, Charles Spurgeon uh, would do a handful of things, and I'll share that, and then we'll have some Q&A. He would uh, tell us that we need a lot of body-soul help that God has provided. He would say, we need the promises of God. And so, he would keep a copy of Clark's Book of Promises with him at all times looking for promises. On a calendar, when he looked at days that brought specifically painful memory, he would write on the calendar a promise of God so that when the day came, he would look at the promise in the day. His wife wrote, we, we might use post-it notes, but she wrote notes of promises all over their home particular times of despondency and criticism for him so that when he looked at the mirror in the morning, there was a promise for him. And so we need God's word and God's promises, yes. We also need a warm bath. So Spurgeon took warm, hot baths. He believed that the environment of Victorian London contributed to the darkness in his soul. And so over time, he began to spend three months, it gradually grew, eventually, by necessity, three months in the south of France every year. We would say today he needed vitamin D. He needed sunlight. 
It's no surprise if you study these things to see that those of us who live in climates where the sunlight is less, we struggle more. And he, he somehow recognized that and made, took steps in that way. Uh, he would say that sometimes the kindest thing for a depressed soul is the lick of a dog. The provision of God through his creation. Being outdoors, taking a walk, seeing the beauty of God's creation. He also monitored his food, though we've seen pictures of him, folks like me, obviously not so well. But he attempted to begin to pay attention to the food he was eating and how it affected him. I myself uh, uh, have to drink uh, reduced caffeine. If I'm drinking too much caffeine, my, my natural anxiety that I struggle with, with anxiety attacks from various circumstances and other things, uh, they're not removed by the absence of caffeine and sugar, but greatly helped. It's always one of the first things I know to ask myself now. When those kinds of attacks come on, what's been my caffeine intake? Have I been... Because we're body and soul. Warm baths, diet, being outdoors, the promises of God, the preaching of the, and teaching of the word, and yes, medicine. So Charles Spurgeon took medicine. It was crude, the medicine of the time. And if you, if you knew the kind of, uh, um, I know I have Baptist friends here, I'm trying to tread lightly. Uh, if we understood the kind of, of nightmare that he lived with internally, it can make all the sense in the world of why he smoked a cigar. I know he quit. I know. But he says himself it relaxed him. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying, doesn't it make sense? And also the great debate about his alcohol intake. He certainly drank medicinal alcohol. That is, the medicine of the day, which utilized alcohol as part, like a toddy. Not as a drinker, but as the doc prescribing medicine. And he would talk at length about why medicine is no sin. Uh, some of us, if a person broke their arm, uh, right now my dear wife Jessica, she just sent a picture. She's got a big boot on her foot. Apparently she strained, sprained her foot. So when such a thing happens, we know. You go to the doctor. You get a boot to put on your foot. You take particular types of medicine. Now everything else has to slow down. Her schedule will have to be different. My schedule will need to be different for her sake and our kids' sake. Everyone will adjust. It will take longer to do things we've ordinarily done. Everybody adjusts. Well, when it's depression, it's like the boot is on the inside and no one can see it. But it needs equal attention and care and time and adjustment but because it's invisible, 
It's difficult for us who watch to understand. And so finally, a metaphor. <laughs> uh, how, how do you help someone in depression? Well, of course, with all these other means we've said, and by reminding them that depression itself is no sin and no indication of God's having abandoned you, and there are, sad, there are things to be sad about, but we learn to weep with those who weep rather than teaching those who weep correcting those who weep, admonishing those who weep, systematically going through with those who weep. We actually weep with those who weep. And uh, one of the ways that we do that, he would say, is through metaphor. And so when you're sitting with someone and they're in the throes of depression, uh, you can ask them this question, what's it like? Now you're in the land of simile and metaphor. What's it like? So I'll say it like this, something like this. What's it like for you? Can you describe it? Some people would say they feel like they're in a maze and they can't get out. Other people would say like they're in thick darkness and they can't see. Someone might say they feel like they're weighed down with heavy blankets, like they're being plunged under the sea and they can't breathe. They feel suffocated. What's it like for you? And most of the time, someone can tell you. It's like... And they'll try to put it into words. And the goodness of a God-given metaphor, like that, the bruised reed. A metaphor uh, allows things that can't fully be explained to be contained, to be expressed. And now when someone says, I feel like I'm in a maze and I can't get out, now you get with empathy to say, that must be terrible. If I were in a maze and I couldn't get out, I think I would start to panic. Do you feel like you're panicking? If I were plunged under the water and I couldn't get up and I can't breathe, I think I would flail about. That must be terrible. Do you feel as though you're flailing about? And see, the goal here isn't to fix anything. The goal is to be with, to weep with those who weep. That is the goal. So there are some things. Uh, we have a few minutes for uh, Q&A. Uh, anybody have a question flowing out of these bits of thought that I'm offering to you? Yes. Yes. That's such a deep question. I think of the one I would say we're in good company. 
the psalmist tells us in Psalm 77, when I thought of God, I moaned. And so someone who thinks of God's word and moan, they moan. They, it's of no help or no good to them. Uh, they don't need my rebuke. They're in the, the saddest possible way. And they need my presence. And because we're in God's world, and according to God's word, we know that all the heavens declare the glory of God. And that means that um, uh, to see a bird is to see something true. Um, the person may not be able to hear me read the scripture about being cared for like a, a sparrow, but I can talk about a sparrow. I can say, I know you love birds. They're so pretty and meaningful. It's something how they're cared for. And I think you're cared for too. Not that moment, I'm not quoting the verse, but I'm speaking the truth. Um, I sometimes will think of uh, the Apostle Paul and the way he'll quote someone's poets or appeal to their experience, like in Acts 14, and with someone who cannot uh, entertain God's word because all they can hear is condemnation or judgment or whatever it might be, then I'll pray for a story of providence. Maybe it's an Irish folk tale, one of their own poets, but the story says something true. And so maybe it's a memory, but I'll, I'll start there, and uh, like the sage would do with a field or a pearl or bread or a father with two sons or a shepherd with sheep and start there. And uh, if, if it seems appropriate, I will say at the end of having talked about the care of the sparrow, I'll say, you know, it reminds me of the kind thing Jesus said. That's as far as I'll go. But there's no quick fix. We're on a long road together. So I don't have to get them to feel at home with the word of God in 10 minutes or else I say woe to you. I don't even understand the fullness of what they're going through. But I can start with God's world and I can start where they're comfortable enough and hopefully inviting them, uh, right? So as we talked about earlier, think right, feel right, do right, doesn't work. Uh, it's true and right and good. But in this particular case, we need experience, feel, think. Do, feel, think as we see the parables that work like that in the wisdom literature. So that's where we're starting, like the wisdom literature does, in this world that God has made. Uh, that, that's, and then when you walk away from, say, having visited such a person or been with such a person, you, you feel undone. You feel hopeless and helpless, and that's a good thing. You're completely dependent upon the Lord. There's no, 
no verse that you could just quote like a doctor. Here, take this to aspirin and call me in the morning. Here's your verse, call me in the morning. Of course we have verses, but uh, we also have scenes and narratives and stories, and we have God's world. So we have all those resources together. There's more to say, but it's something like that. Yeah. Hi, I would like to thank Zach for the points he's made very well this afternoon. That sin didn't come from the doctor, but medicine brought sin. Mm-hmm. And just one of the things that's going through my mind is they've written about Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a great man of God. He was wholeheartedly involved in the Lord's work. Mm-hmm. But is it possible? that in a sense he was a bit like Elijah. So in 1 Kings 18, we read about Elijah, mm-hmm. the brave man of God who was right in the heart of the spiritual battle in confrontation with the 450 prophets of Baal. Yes. But then the next chapter, chapter 19, verse 4, begins with Elijah under the juniper tree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly I would agree with what you said, Zach, mm-hmm. about the fact that the, the rain Yes. Pull yourself out there. But Elijah was exhausted. Yes. And though it's a privilege to have the conference today, I know there will be many of people here who are very actively involved in the Lord's work. Yes. And yet they themselves could be particularly susceptible to these things as Spurgeon was. I also just want to say very, very briefly that I think as well that your book does the body of Christ to great service because yeah. one of the problems with the depressed and Spurgeon would turn to Elijah, to the psalmists, to David, to Jeremiah. He would say, we go to the scriptures to realize we're not the first to be depressed. And he would even say that Jesus was mentally depressed. That's Spurgeon's words, not mine. Jesus was mentally depressed. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said this. Again, this is Spurgeon. I'll hide behind him right now, right? He said, there are times when the cross is of no comfort. And the resurrection is no comfort. What we need is uh, the Savior in the garden. We need the man in Gethsemane who sweat like blood, who underwent mental depression. And Spurgeon says, there we see not a general who stays back and sends the other soldiers forward. There we see the general that leads the way. And we learn there that we have a fellow friend. And so Spurgeon adds Gethsemane to the cross, resurrection, and ascension as the means of God's comfort for his people.
Well, that's quite a, a deep question with a lot to say, but I'll, I'll summarize it this way. It's a messy business. And uh, we, where I'm a pastor, I'm a faith minority. And so to believe in the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus is already a minority view in our zip code. So out of the 35,000 people that live there in our zip, in our region there, 20,000 claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. And the remaining 15,000 who claim some type of religion, the vast majority of them uh, are identified with a progressive Christianity, which is to say the old liberalism in a new way. Jesus is still in the ground. He didn't die for our sins. He was a a symbol, uh, the Christ of faith rather than the Christ of history and things like this. And so simply to say we believe the Bible is God's word, I'm nowhere near anything reformational. I'm nowhere near Calvin. or We're already a minority. And so uh, learning to speak of Christ, uh, um, the, first, so the, the first question I received, so, so that because of that, uh, I, there is no way for me to do pastoral ministry without a relationship with uh, people who are same-sex uh, and other sex attracted or who would identify themselves as gay, same-sex. And there isn't any way to live life or be faithfully, faithful Christian without coming into contact with very dear people who... Uh, would identify with the LGBTQ plus community. And so what, how do I then, as a Christian, seek to reach uh, any neighbor as an ambassador of Christ? And it will mean, uh, it will include this neighbor too. And so as we coach in local basketball leagues, as our kids go to school, as we do various things, we have uh, friends and neighbors who do not see themselves as Christians and who do see themselves as a part of this community and who, whose only way of thinking about a Christian is through the lens of bigotry and pain. And so mm, to treat another person as a human being is our... And to... Um, to invite them to a, a view of celibacy, to a historic Christian point of view, uh, is a part of our task. And it's very difficult because um, it is already assumed. You know, Christians are not identified with good news. 
and we're not identified as being hospitable or loving. Uh, say the name Christian where I'm from, and you're a bigot. You're homophobic, inhospitable, judgmental, mean. And so simply being able to learn what it is to weep with someone who weeps and love a neighbor as myself, even one who would be an enemy to me, is what we're seeking to do. And it's a messy business because uh, uh, folks, mm, folks are, rest, you know, uh, such folks who have an interest in Jesus aren't often welcome in the LGBTQ community because of their interest in Jesus. And yet, they're not welcome in the evangelical reform community or other church communities. Uh, and so, trust, you know. Is there trust enough that, they, that we would disagree with them on this question and they would disagree with us on this question and yet we'd con continue to grapple with Jesus together as if we were on the road together for three years like the disciples had, you know. And uh, that's what we're attempting to do. And it's, it's uh, meaningful and messy. Meaningful and messy. Because we get criticized from um, fellow Christians who believe that simply by opening our door to a fellow human being, we're already compromising. And then we get criticized by those left of us who, who, who don't believe in historic Christianity by saying, simply because we disagree, we hate. And so we're on a, uh, I guess, asking God, I'll, I'll say it this way, and then we'll close for our breakout. Our culture is offering us two visions of the world. This is where I'm from. One, uh, two visions of love. One, the first is, you can't affirm anyone until you can fully endorse them. You can't affirm anyone until you can fully endorse them. And so if an evangelical person applauds uh, a gay comedian's humor, that evangelical will be attacked by the church as compromising. Even though all that person did was say what anybody listening would attest to, that person's funny. And the other side is you can't disagree with anyone about anything because if you do, you hate them. If you disagree with one thing, you hate them completely. And so where that leaves us is in a situation that doesn't work in any other sphere of life. A sports team cannot function if you have to withhold affirmation until you perfectly align with that person. And you can't disagree because that means you hate. A family can't function that way. A church can't function that way. A teacher in a school can't function that way. A project team at business can't function that way. It doesn't work in any other sphere of life. You have to be able to affirm and encourage someone even when they don't fully align with where you would like them to be. And you have to be able to disagree with someone even though you're still in life together and going on. Those are important skills to have. And this is the Christian testimony. Jesus has affirmed things about me without endorsing everything about me, and he has disagreed with me profoundly without hating me. This is my very testimony and yours. And so the call to love our neighbor as ourselves, including our enemy, 
no matter who that neighbor is, with all the resources of love, patience, kindness, right? 1 Corinthians 13, it is not rude, etc. All the full, robust resources of love, not words that are nice, but love. Uh, that's radical in our current moment. So I would like to say to young people here, you want to be radical? Affirm those with whom you disagree. Disagree without hating. Love your neighbor as yourself, including your enemy, because there's no one around doing that. And you will get criticized from both sides. But so was Jesus. And apart from what we hear on the media and in our own circles, people do come to believe in Jesus Christ from that community, just like any other. They're human beings. So that's a lot. There's a few things. Okay, well, we should take a break, shouldn't we? We're a bit, a bit over probably. Yep. Nima.